You know, some people have the idea that art is uncontrolled and that you're just stoned and typing. You know, you're just like, <laughs> you're just letting it all rip. That's not it for me, but it is a matter of maintaining control and at some critical moment, something in you, I guess it's subconscious, is smarter than you and it kind of overflows the container. Welcome to the Converge Lecture Series podcast, a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. I'm Jake Brownell. This is our first official episode of the podcast, and I can't think of a better guest to kick things off. George Saunders. He's a writer who's been dazzling readers for more than two decades with his essays, articles, short stories, and now his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Man Booker Prize for Fiction last year. The book centers around one fateful night in a graveyard in Georgetown in 1862. Following the death of his 11-year-old son, Willie, a grief-stricken President Abraham Lincoln pays a visit to the crypt. Saunders tells the story through a combination of fragments from primary and secondary sources and the narration of a motley chorus of ghosts who live in the graveyard, souls stuck in a kind of purgatory between this world and the next. Saunders is a writer of extraordinary imagination, wit, and compassion. His work, from Lincoln and the Bardo to short story collections like Tenth of December and Pastoralia, often focuses on characters in dire circumstances or dystopian worlds who are struggling, as we all are, to make sense of their lives. Saunders was invited to speak in Colorado Springs as part of Converge Lecture Series, which brings writers and poets to the city to share their reflections on art, life, and the topic of moral beauty. I reached him at a studio in California in the waning days of 2017. George Saunders, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you. thanks for asking me. 2017 has been a big year for you. You put out your debut novel. Uh, you've won the Man Booker Prize. Tons of acclaim. It's also been a pretty crazy year in America and in the world. Um, how's this year been for you? Well, it's, I mean, on the personal level, it's been great. Actually, you know, to be honest, to, to have the chance to be out in the world with a book during this time was really good. And I would say almost kind of encouraging. Like I, you know, the, the book came out right after the inauguration and I went on this big tour and it was really striking uh, sort of the difference between the real world, like the world that you experience when you're in it and you're talking to people and you're having exchanges and then the world that presents to us through the, the media or through social media. So I was actually kind of grateful that during this year I had a lot of time on the ground to talk to people and kind of, uh, you know, be reassured of their basic goodness, I guess. That actually echoes something I've seen that you've written elsewhere, kind of referring to our current political moment. I think it was in an interview you did where you said fiction can be a way of kind of bridging the empathic divide and allowing you to practice the very important skill of understanding the complexity of another person. Do you see that as being an important political virtue in this time of, of such divisiveness? Yeah, you know, I think if we look at the way our minds work, they have a bunch of different speeds. You know, there's one speed that kicks in when you're angrily responding to a tweet or something or or reading some partisan screed. And then there's another speed when you're reading a novel or even when you're just sitting across a table from somebody. So I guess my big realization was just that those are really distinctive modes of thought. 
So it's okay. They're both good. They're both part of what it means to be human. But I'm a little wary of the extent to which we're starting to think that the first mode, the kind of shallow, antagonistic, what I would call social media mode, is starting to be mistaken for reality. And it, it actually isn't reality. It's a, a very narrow construct in which we operate. And I just notice in myself that I, my empathic abilities decrease in that mode. So for now, I'm just kind of making a note of that and also trying to resolve to spend a little more time in the latter mode where I'm thinking and writing and talking to people at length rather than, you know, quickly and antagonistically, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Along those lines, I've seen you describe reading as, quote, a form of prayer, a guided meditation that briefly makes us believe we're someone else, disrupting the delusion that we're permanent and at the center of the universe. Do you think of writing in similarly spiritual terms? I do, although, you know, when you think of it that way, it's a bit of a buzzkill. I mean, it makes you self-conscious and you feel kind of like you're wearing angelic robes. So I, I just, for me, writing is a deeply pleasurable, kind of playful thing. But when I come out of it, I notice that my mind's been working in a different mode than it usually does. And I think you could approximate that mode by saying it's a little more patient, a little more curious. It has a better sense of humor. It's more willing to reside with this other person that is your character. You know, you're making up some guy and you you notice that your first impulse might be to make fun of him or use him in some way. And as you, you know, you write over many days or many weeks, he starts to come alive for you in a way. And almost automatically you render him more of your sympathetic feelings. So that to me is, is a, it's almost like a side benefit of the practice of writing, which I... I just enjoy the practice, but I do notice that it makes you, you know, maybe just wake up to the fact that other people are as real as you are. And the way you wake up to that is by spending a lot of mental time every day with this imaginary person. Trying to imagine what might be going on in another person's head. Yeah. And I think you're doing it so that the story doesn't stink, basically. You know, you're <laughs> you're making up a person and your first pass is always a little facile and a little transparent. The reader can see what you're trying to do and often they can feel some kind of agenda. And then as you work on the prose itself, of necessity, you start providing more detail, more specificity, more ambiguity. So I, I don't quite know why it works that way, but I know that it works that way. So if you dwell with some prose and you're trying to make it more energetic, you kind of nudge yourself into a different mode of thinking that I think is really rich and really productive and, and um, strangely powerful because it's so watchful that it kind of puts you into a, I don't know, it, it feels like a very um, a strong state as opposed to a weak, agitated state. What was the first story that you ever wrote? Well, I wrote this, <laughs> first one I remember is I was a little kid and I wrote this story about uh, World War II in which... I was uh, a third grader who was somehow recruited into the Marines. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> and went over and killed a bunch of people, and I was a big hero. That was the first story. Uh, so kind of a you know violent, racist screed, basically. And then I didn't write anything for many, many years. And then I think the next thing was in college, I had a really cool class with this professor named Jay Gillette, and it was Mark Twain and the history of the American West or something. And he just encouraged us towards the end of the semester to write a piece of humor. You know, I was thick in, and I was at School of Mines up in Golden, up, up the road from you guys. And uh, I was just had been doing engineering, you know, for, for four years. And suddenly they had this permission to just be goofy and make something funny. And I found that I really came alive when I was doing that. 
in a way that never happened when I was doing my, my actual schoolwork. Did you have, even at that point, this sort of experience you were describing about that more expansive sense of, uh, of yourself and a, 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 that deeper mode of thinking that en- enables you to imagine characters and understand different realities? I don't think so. This was really just a kind of a one-off. The thing it reminded me of at that time was, uh, you know, when you go to a party and you're feeling good and you make a joke and everybody laughs. It was more that kind of energy, which, you know, that still is very important to me, that sense that writing should be kind of enlivening and entertaining and it should, you know, set up an enjoyable uh, communication between you and your reader. So I had more of that sense. It was was actually a little more like doing stand-up, I'd say, than actual, you know, literature. And so you you went to school for engineering, didn't necessarily have that kind of literary background, whatever that might be. But what was it in in your past and in your life up to that point before you really started writing, quote unquote, literature that you think kind of prepared you to write literature? Yeah, well, I think it was mostly, you know, our family on on both sides of my family. they, They were kind of funny storytellers. Every family has a kind of implied value system. And in our family, uh, being a good storyteller was was big, and being funny was important. If you could sort of come into a situation and kind of command the room, that was just assumed to be a good thing. So I think that was probably most of it, that feeling of being uh, communication, whether it's a joke or a story, being a way of kind of including the people around you in this experience. So that, that I think that was a, an, an early thing. And then I'd had, um, when I was in third grade, I read a book called Johnny Tremaine that a, that a nun actually gave me as a special gift. And that opened something up in my head about, um, you know, the power of style to communicate a very particular reality. And I, I remember that, you know, reading this book and suddenly thinking in the writer's language. And so that was a little door that got thrown open early. But I think it was it was mostly just the idea that this, you know, I always had a kind of an affection for life, a kind of a real sort of a tendency to imagine other lives and and that somehow translating into a desire to communicate with other people, make them laugh, make them feel comfortable. And you were uh, raised Catholic, right? Very, yeah. In the south side of Chicago in the 70s Catholic, which is like uber, uber Catholic. <laughs> I know you're, you're not, you don't identify as Catholic anymore. We'll, we can kind of get to that. But how do you think the Catholicism of your childhood informed who you are today and and how you think about storytelling and characters. Well, it was a very earnest and you know maybe even extreme form of religion. It was it was um assumed it was in the air that if you had a religious belief it should affect the way that you live. We were catching a strain of Catholicism that was kind of activist. You know, I think it was now I can see it was inflected by Dorothy Day and uh, some of those people, maybe Thomas Merton, you know, so it, I, so it was really interesting. I, I know, you know, even at that age at fifth or sixth grade, I knew that it was supposed to be uncool, but it was really, it came to me very vividly, you know, the idea of somebody who, Jesus, who was so, um, empathetic and so full of love that he could imagine out, out of his own experience. And he could actually elevate, uh, the people around him by his attention to them. And that, that really, um, was very moving. And then the other thing that I think I retained was just the big metaphor that the masses, you know, all the, um, the the different colors and the different vestments and the different the incense and the songs. That was really powerful to me. And I, you know, again, in spite of myself, I really looked forward to it. We'd, we'd go in as a, a school class and everybody would be complaining about it. But secretly, I was always um, looking forward to it, partly, I think, because I got into a state of mind during the mass that now I can see was meditative. You know, you everything would start to quiet down. 
so I thought it was wonderful. And then the other thing about the mass, I think, is that in that setting, I could I could feel that there was a meaning that was being communicated that was actually subverbal. In in other words, it, it was there were metaphors and there were there were things that were coming to me that weren't being stated overtly. And I think that was early training for for art. You know, the idea that you can talk about art and you can analyze it and reduce it to intellectual concepts, but a good work of art is doing a whole bunch of work under the surface that is sort of impossible to talk about, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. When did you sort of leave Catholicism? When did that schism happen for you? I, you know, actually, I would say it didn't. And, you know, I, I moved away, like I think a lot of kids at that time, seventh or eighth grade, you got rebellious, you know, and started acting, asking obnoxious questions, you know, in, in catechism. Uh, and then, you know, didn't do anything overtly spiritual for most of my 20s. And then when we got married, my wife and I, we, uh, you know, went to the Episcopal Church for a while and a Protestant church and now we're Buddhist. But I, I feel like that those early Catholic experiences are still very much alive in me. I don't go to Catholic church anymore, but I would. You know, it doesn't, I don't, I don't see it as a, an objectionable thing at all. So you still see it as, as part of your kind of spiritual identity on some level? A hundred percent, yeah. And as I, you know, as I learn a little more about Buddhism, I can just feel that converging with those early Catholic experiences. You know, honestly, what I'm, I'm just really grateful that I had those experiences when I was young because it kind of puts a little bit of a, of an anti-materialist vaccine into your body. You know, once you, if you have, as a young person, a powerful, let's call it a spiritual experience, I think you always have a a, a longing for that again, and. Um, even if it's many years before you find a way to recreate that, it, the, the longing is still there. And it, maybe it's just this, the fact that you have some little taste that the literal isn't sufficient, that we can think and we can talk and we can analyze and we can conceptualize, but there are depths below that that are very real, maybe more real than the literal. So years later, I think I recognized that longing for mystery when I first started writing well. Suddenly, you know, my stories were saying things that I hadn't really meant for them to say, that I didn't really understand, but that I somehow still kind of approved of. And that, that actually really did remind me of those early uh, church experiences. That's such a beautiful uh, statement. The literal isn't sufficient. I mean, especially considering I, I think so much of what draws people to your writing, uh, certainly what draws me to your writing, is the fact that there's something deeply philosophical about what you do but it's obviously not you're not writing works of philosophy you know you're writing no. <laughs> you're writing literature you're writing art you're writing things that are ambiguous in a way that a work of of philosophy is not thanks is that part of the appeal to, of of literature to you that ambiguity yeah because you know as you're writing it you lead yourself down that path as well and you know it, it would be something like this you have an idea about the world of course we have to have ideas about the world you have this idea and then somehow, whether it's reality or an artistic model, that idea gets complicated. And there's that split second of true, as you said, ambiguity where you really don't have an opinion, but you have interesting inputs, you know. Uh, so someone is saying, you know, we have to live within the law and illegal immigrants can't be in the country. Okay, you have that belief. Then you meet somebody who is a 20-year-old whose parents brought her over and in that split second where you can't reconcile your concept with reality, that's actually a really, uh, I would say it's a sacred place. You know, that, that moment of true confusion where 
you've gotten out of your own way a little bit. It's not very comforting to be in that situation. We scramble to get out of it. But for me, that moment where, you know, in a funny way, you're setting yourself against yourself when you write a story. You, you make one a character who comes out of your consciousness. That person has certain beliefs and desires. Then you complicate him or her with another character also created from your mind. And I think for me, the goal is to get to that kind of, I think of it as a Chekhovian space where you really don't know what you think. You know, you don't know what the surface level banal you thinks. For me, the whole game is about producing that moment of, of temporary ambiguity that somehow people, people actually crave it and they find it beautiful when it happens. It's, in, it's like Shakespeare is full of those kind of those contradictory moments. Absolutely. I mean, and, and that sounds a lot like uh, Socrates right. to sort of bring an argument to the edge of the absurd and, and leave you in a state of confusion. Um, yes, exactly. In your writing, you know, I'm thinking of Lincoln and the Bardo uh, right now, but y- you, you can engender that confusion in your reader in a really exciting way. Like I'm thinking of just the the way that you, that Lincoln and the Bardo starts out, these different voices. You're not really sure where you are, what's happening. It takes you a number of pages to really figure out the concept behind the book. Is, is that right. putting a reader in a state of confusion? Is there something there that relates to that larger mission that you just outlined? Yeah, I, well, I think so. I think, you know, there's a couple of principles. One is as you engender these various stances, you want to make them as defensible as possible. A common mistake in satire is to make the opposition position really stupid uh-huh. and then run over and knock it over. But I think no matter what position you're trying to occupy, you make that as substantial and heartfelt as you can. And you recognize that whatever human being you're creating on the page is absolutely coming from you, you know, which is a very weird idea. It means that we essentially have to assume that we contain everybody. You know, whatever your situation is, theoretically, I can understand it, at least close enough to do a, a replication of it on the page. So if you are, uh, as the first character in Lincoln and the Bardo is this ghost, basically, who, you know, was frustrated in love. He died on the brink of consummating his marriage. Uh, you know, we can all be that person. We have sufficient imaginative capabilities to be him for two or three pages. Then you're done with him and you run around to the next person. So in some ways, in that book, there's something like 166 different voices. So the fun is to say, yeah, I, I can actually embody that many people convincingly and then just let them all talk at once. And all the contradictions and the concordances that come out of that, uh, that's really the point. You're not trying to sort of control it or make it say one thing, but you're actually, I mean, it sounds kind of nuts, but you're actually trying to give voice to all of the different versions of consciousness in you. And when you do that, somehow the experience is, is powerful for you and also for the reader, hopefully. Do you think you're special that you can <laughs> conjure those kind of, like that multiplicity of voices and perspectives? I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I, I can certainly read them and understand them and appreciate them, but I don't know that I could conjure them. I, I think actually it's, I don't think it's special. I think it's, tr- it's sort of training to recognize that as a positive aspiration to do that and then to sort of learn the tricks. I mean, like 95% of what I'm doing feels to me very technical and kind of, uh, you know, like building a Lego city or something is not, you know, so if you have two characters who sound alike, that won't cut it. You you know, you've got to distinguish them. Okay. So then you're talking about phrase level adjustments. When you talk about writing, you tend to talk about it in lofty 
terms or quasi-philosophical terms or questions of, you know, about intention or worldview. But in the day-to-day, for me, it's much more mechanical. And is that process ever frustrating in the way that sort of technical work can be? Sure, yeah. And the only thing that happens over the years is you start to recognize that frustrated feeling is just part of the part of the game. You know, like if you're a football player and you get hit in the head, it hurts and you know that you're doing it right, you know, because <laughs> you, you, you know. So, but then the other thing that's kind of interesting is that, you know, if we're talking about empathy, this sort of boring technical stuff that I'm talking about where I'm trying to keep you in the fictive dream, lately I've been thinking that that's also a form of empathy and it's my ability to imagine you, Jacob, my reader, in the most positive way is part of this interchange too. In other words, I mean, my early writing that was bad had a tendency to disregard the reader. The reader was below me and her job was to sit there and be admiring no matter what I did. And over the years you go, oh no, this we're, you know, we're equal partners in this. The technical work that I'm doing is all about honoring you in a sense, you know, to say, Jacob's just as smart as I am, just as engaged, so I can't phone any any of this in. That that's another way of describing this this technical work. Much of your work is very, I guess, conceptual in that you kind of ha- have an aha moment as a reader and say, oh, okay, I kind of get the structure here. I kind of get sort of the world that I'm in. I'm, I'm starting to understand it. And it feels like you've really built an edifice. Uh, in the writing process, it sounds like it's that building that is the step-by-step the thing that you're most focused on rather than the here's the moral here's like what what I'm hoping you're going to get out of this for sure anything like yeah. that yeah yeah you know realistically i think what happens is you're aware of those thematic things and you're aware of the edifice you're making and i think you have to kind of say yeah okay so this is what i'm doing so far but the hope is that you'll some moment will come where you'll blow the whole thing up you know where in other words you might have a some idea of the sort of moral scheme of your story, but you're hoping that something new will happen that will either overturn it or complicate it in some way. You know, the, this this idea that if you maintain control of your story 100% of the time, you're not really a storyteller. You know, you're kind of a lecturer. Right. Um, so what I, what I notice is you, you'll be aware of a certain, like in Lincoln, you know, there's a, a pretty, I think in some ways it's a hard book to break the code. You know, it, it takes a while and some people just don't and put it down. But that was all very deliberate in the sense that over the four years of writing it, I was really experimenting with the form to try to maximize the emotional content, really. So there, there should be a moment where the reader goes, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. I'm with you. And then my part of it is, is then to hopefully do even more than, than you expected. You know, some people have the idea that art is uncontrolled and that you're just stoned and typing you know you're just like you're just you're just just letting it all rip that's not it for me but it is a matter of maintaining control and at some critical moment something in you i I guess it's subconscious is smarter than you and it kind of overflows the container that that's the goal and until that happens in a story i don't really feel like it's done but that's tricky because you can't summon it it has to sort of be earned by the the rigor of the process, I think, in some mysterious way. And it, it seems like it takes a bit of nerve to do like what you did in, in Lincoln and the Bardo, where it does take a bit of time to figure out what's going on and whether where there is that confusion in the reader that, that you describe, to lead with that and to hope that people will stick with you 
do you ever worry about that when you're thinking about how to make a, a book accessible to an audience? Well, I think that, you know, what you're doing when you're writing every day is worrying about that exactly in an active way. So you, you've been working on the book for two years. You sit down on Monday and start reading it. And you're asking all the questions that you're asking. In other words, is this too weird? Is it too inaccessible? You know, will anybody read it? But you're also saying to yourself, well, there's a method to this madness. I'm not being weird just to be weird. I, I'm, I'm trying to maximize the emotional experience of the reader, and I'm making a gamble that if I make kind of a, you know, a long, narrow entry bridge, it'll pay off 200 pages later. So the only way that I know about uh, to figure that stuff out is to rewrite, you know, to try it a million different ways. And, you know, with this book, it, at one point it opened with 40 pages of historical accounts that were verbatim from history books. Wow. And, you know, yeah, and it was bold, but it was also boring. <laughs> you know, it was, it was like you, you get in there and you're like, wow, okay, so this is just uh, that for 30 pages. And you really, I think a, a, a sincere reader would feel a kind of arrogance from my side or a kind of a autopilot. So, you know, so that version was in existence for at least a month. And one day I went in there and read it and went, yeah, this is not, this is too much. This isn't right. So in in a sense, the questions that you're asking are 100%, that's the whole writing process. But I think I never am able to answer them abstractly or intellectually, but only by going in every day and trying to imagine that I'm a first-time reader and see if this guy George is messing with me or not, you know. And if he is, is he doing it with a... Uh, a smile on his face and with a, a bigger plan, you know, so, yeah. But I think, you know, I think in art, whenever there's a problem, that's great because all you have to do is sort of, as an artist, acknowledge the problem and say, I see you, I'm going to account for you. A, a problem doesn't mean the end of the process. It actually means that the process is getting interesting. So you have described yourself in the past as a Buddhist or is that, is that accurate? Would you, would you call yourself a Buddhist? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly high level. I, I really believe in it, and I, uh, but I'm kind of a sporadic practitioner. But yeah, I, I, I think it's really a wonderful uh, tradition. When did you start getting interested in it and practicing it, and and how do you think it kind of has influenced your approach to the types of stories you want to write? Well, my wife, when our kids were little, we were going to Episcopal church, and she expressed an interest in learning uh, about meditation, and we didn't find at that time the resources that we needed within the church. So she went to a Tibetan teaching and found it really wonderful. And so really, it was just that. It was, this is maybe 15, 20 years ago. And um, the short answer is, I think I was probably involved in some kind of meditation before I even knew what it was. And that was through writing in the way that we were just talking about. You know, you, the idea that um, the stuff that you know on the surface analytically is only partly true and that any experience you, you're engaged in, you have this incredible power to step outside of it and watch yourself doing it and correct accordingly. And in writing, I think, to the idea that you can have all the ideas in the world about your project, but if it's boring, game over. And that the good ideas that a piece has, are they remain to be discovered. It's not your place to say in advance what your story is about. Your, your job is to show up kind of openly and start doing basically energy assessment, adjusting the story until it has a really undeniable energy, and then it'll tell you what it's about. So those kind of things were, um, I was discovering those kind of slowly, you know, in my early writing days. But when I had my first kind of writing breakthrough was around uh, 
I guess, 1989 or 90. And uh, it was exactly what I'm describing. I was just typing for fun at work, basically. And I hit this mode of being kind of funny and kind of fast and kind of uh, super contemporary and a little bit perverse. And suddenly that typing had more energy than anything I'd done before. So I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it was saying, but it, but it was undeniable in its energy. So I just followed it. And I think that's basically, you know, some, something Buddhist about that. And do you have a, a sort of view of the, I guess, the metaphysics of that uh, phenomenon? Like, do you, do you see that as having some, some external, you know, reality, this idea of a, a kind of deeper consciousness or consciousness beyond that inspires you? Or how do you, how do you think about that? Well, I guess, I mean, as a former scientist, I just think if you look at our sensory apparatus, it's incredibly limited and Darwinian, you know, and practical. So we hear in the frequency that we hear for a reason, we see what we see for a reason. The brain is not, you know, it's a very clumsy I mean, incredibly beautiful, but a, but it's it's a tool. And so just that, I mean, and that's maybe more a scientific perspective than, than a spiritual one, is to say the thing that seems so real to us every day when we wake up, our reality is completely constructed mm-hmm. by our minds, you know. Now, that's kind of a, a Gordian knot because even that thought is constructed. So, so I don't know, you know, I think that's the the sort of interesting gateway to a lot of things, art and spirituality and from my very very limited engagement with it buddhism takes that on very joyfully and says yeah that's right you know it would be very weird if the way things seem to us you know given our limited sensory apparatus corresponded exactly with the way things really are but the hopeful thing is that we still do get little hints and maybe all we get is a hint that our apparatus is insufficient but moments of transcendence or breakthrough or whatever you want to call it or I would say even a moment when you feel a rush of selfless love for somebody or something, that's a little indication that the apparatus is constricting us. Uh, and my hope and my thought is that there are, there is a way for us to get free of the apparatus. I, I suspect it happens when we die, but beyond that, I don't really know. But to me, just the idea that we have some, you know, the curtain does drop every now and then just for a split second. And if nothing else, we can become kind of giddily aware that that we're not properly equipped to be, you know, to be fully in the world. There's something in in your writing. I, I've seen this in a few different stories of yours where characters have this proximity to death. Like in Bardo, it's uh, Bevins. He's he's about to transcend and has this moment of recognition of you know just all of the things in the world he says everything was real inconceivably real infinitely dear and he's describing tying a shoe tying a knot on a package uh, a bandy-legged dog proudly back plows the grass and covers its modest shit <laughs> the recognition <laughs> of everything in the world and and the beauty of it um and this proximity to death and to that release into something beyond our apparatus kind of makes real at the same time um, the beauty of the, the things that we do see and the world and the reality that we do experience. That's, that's beautifully put. I just say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is, that, is that something that, like, what, what inspires you to, to go to that place? Because it is a place that you've gone in a number of stories that I've seen. It, have you had an experience like that that inspires you, or is it more about your, 
your study of Buddhism and, and your experience of just sort of noticing the world? Um, I, you know, I think we all have those experiences. I mean, every day, if you're watching, the, you know, the, a sudden feeling of fondness for the world and then it'll go away. I mean, I, did, I had a near, it wasn't a near death. It was a near, near death <laughs> uh, on a plane one time where the plane, you know, an engine went out and all that. And I, did, you know, I just noticed the next day that things were really great. <laughs> you know, every, everything was great. Uh, a mushroom. Oh, my God. But no, I, I think that's, I mean, here, here's what I notice is within even a very mundane day, let's say, you stub your toe, you catch a whiff of fresh cut grass, you get a flu. We know that our experience of the world is dependent on circumstance, but more than that, it's dependent on the mind that perceives it. So that that second thing to me is really interesting, that you could have heaven or hell, it's just coming from your mind. You, you could have people who are suffering greatly and were in a blissful state. You could have people who are in heaven on earth and are totally miserable. So I think that's, as I'm getting older, that's really interesting is that you, if you could create a positive view of the world, you, you would literally alter your, your world. And I suppose as, also as you get older, you start to see that the fact that, you know, you're sitting in your car and it just seems regular. The same old dumb song comes on. Oh, God, there's a fast food place. Ugh. You know, that's a set of perceptions that isn't true. It's not false, but it's it's not true. It's it's a product of your mind. So I think as you as you get older, I do think there's a sense that you could develop an ability to see that even a split second of perception is an incredible gift that's not going to be yours forever. You know, but also you know in the section that you're talking about, there's there's another way of answering this, which is that again you're looking to make the prose energetic. With Bevins, I noticed that his prose got energetic when he started looking at things specifically. And when I kind of turned the dial and said, okay, we're going to set you on high modernist, you know, <laughs> you're allowed to have access to any linguistic tools you like, Mr. Bevins. Then he started expounding on the thing. So it's kind of a weird circular truth chamber, you know. You are trying to say things about life. You're also trying to make prose that's energetic. And the two things kind of unite in this kind of weird way. And I can't really describe it. But. I have to say, those are some of my favorite moments in, in some of your stories. Uh, this is well, sim- thank you. a similar thank you. moment in the uh, the title story of 10th of December with the elderly character kind of taking stock and having a similar kind of revelation, it seems. I, I think there's something also about the expectation of the story form is that towards the end, we should be getting up into the higher registers. You know, because in that in 10th of December, that character has lived himself up into this almost tragedy and that opens his senses up. But I think, too, you know, I have to be a little careful about that because it can become a bit of a, a tick, you know, to to always end a story on a, on a lyrical high point. And, of course, in real life, stories don't always end that way. Some, they sometimes just fizzle out or they, they hit a wall depressingly, you know. So this is another thing where as you become aware of a certain tendency in your craft that maybe has produced good results, you also have to kind of look at it a little warily and say, okay, my enemy is autopilot. So check yourself, you know, to make sure that you're not at any level phoning anything in. So in all my, my new book, everybody gets eaten by a tiger at the end and they're really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. In a commencement speech that you gave at Syracuse a few years back that kind of went viral, um, you talked about success and, and this sort of drive, this ambitious drive to sort of do more and be more. 
Um, and you, you said, success is a mountain that keeps growing ahead of you as you hike it. There's a very real danger that succeeding will take up your whole life while the big questions go untended. Um, I mean, you <laughs> have achieved quite a bit of success at this point in your life, and I'm sh- sure you'll continue to do so. Has that been true for you? How, how has the success that you've experienced as a writer uh, affected you on a sort of spiritual level? Yeah. Well, one thing is I became aware that I had a tendency to think that if I just succeeded enough, the things that were vexing me would fall away. So, you know, my fear of being inadequate, my fear of dying, my fear of being irrelevant would just go away. Well, that actually doesn't happen. And the more success you get, the more you see that those things are not negotiable. Uh, so that's interesting, you know, to, to notice that. But I think in the metaphor of, you know, the mountain that keeps appearing before you, I'm, I think the trick is to have a proper relation to what you're doing so that as the mountain continues to, to appear ahead of you, you continue to enjoy the climb. That's one thing. You know, I know for myself, I, I think this is probably a weakness, but when I'm not working, I get a little depressed. I don't like um, relaxing, actually. I'm kind of a workaholic. So, all right, that's okay. My feeling is as long as you don't think that succeeding is going to change the essential dynamic, then you're okay. You can continue to work and succeed. Actually, you know, you can use the success and the hard work to raise the stakes of the spiritual questions, you know. So, I mean, to have a year like I've had, it should correspond to complete bliss, but it actually doesn't, you know. I'm happy and I'm satisfied, but but it also raises the question of what's next. And again, you know, you, you kind of realize that if you kept producing books that were better and better than the previous book, you still die at the end. <laughs> so, so that's kind of a, something to think about. But Yeah. Do, do you have a, an answer to that question, at least in the near future, of, of what's next, of what you'd like to accomplish? No, I mean, actually, the only answer I have is just to get back to work, you know. And, and I think that, for me, that's the tricky part is when you're not working, your mind says, what's next? And novel or short story? And I find that once I actually start working, those questions get subsumed in much smaller questions, like how is this paragraph doing? Uh, so, I, so my biggest challenge right now is to find the time to get back to work and then also to find a very, very low aspiration mode in which to work, just to say, yeah, I'm going to mess around with a couple of paragraphs today and see where it goes. Whereas the temptation is to say, okay, now, you know, I, I, I had uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was having a lot of anxiety about what's next, you know, and, and woke up in the middle of the night with this idea for a novel. I had the title, you know, and I wrote it down and woke up the next day and it was uh, like Custer in Purgatory or something like that, you know. <laughs> so, so, so for me, you know, figuring it out in advance doesn't ever work. So it's just a matter of quietly going back to work and, you know, with, with a little bit of – like I think you have a bit of gratitude for the, this last year. And maybe one of the feelings that's helpful to me is to say this book did pretty good. So therefore, your audience is with you. You know, the people who, who liked the book liked it. You can even go a little farther if you can, if you can manage and, and they'll, they'll still track with you. When you think about your, your legacy as a writer, uh, I mean, obviously, you're still, you're still writing it. But what do you hope to do for, for literary culture, if anything? What do you hope to sort of, or, or human culture, or, you know, on, on any kind of grand scale, what do you hope your legacy might be? Ah. You know, it. I could come up with something, and I, and I will in a minute, but I would say parenthetically, functionally, it works better if I don't think about that because 
those notions in me tend to get embodied kind of grand, grandiosely mm-hmm. and it doesn't help. It just makes me freeze up a little bit. So, but I do, I mean, the one thing I, I feel somehow, I like it when somebody reads one of my stories and feels more confident in her basic instincts. You know what I mean? Like it, when, when somebody has some, uh, something in them confirmed by a story, something good in them confirmed. I like that. I, I, I just like the idea of, of comforting, you know, offering some kind of wry comfort to, to somebody who's reading it. Maybe they're having a hard time. The story saying, yeah, me too. You know, my mind is a mess. I'm not a, you know, particularly stable person. I'm all over the place. This story is kind of an indication that we're on the same, we're in the same game here. Uh, so I think, I think comfort is something I, I, I a word that I come back to in, in terms of the reader-writer uh, interaction. Yeah. Well, and, and as a reader, I can say that I, I would say one of the things that is comforting about about your work is that uh, you manage to find some beauty in in that, in that confusion, in that feeling of fallenness, in this sort of profanity of life um, that, that you manage to highlight something about it that feels like you can marvel at it on some level. Well, good. You know what I think? I, I was thinking today when I look at m- my life to date, the, the one thing I I notice, and this is a hard thing to write about, but th- there's the persistence of goodness that there is in in a human being, some ability to both long for and recognize the light. To me, it seems like human beings basically are pretty much light dominated, but then we have all these things piled on top of us, habits and negativity and so on. So I think that to me is something that I'm trying to materialize in my own life is the idea that that actually maybe the world isn't darkness and light. It's mostly light. And we actually have access to it. We you know and so I'm trying to think of ways every day that uh or, or I'm trying to track that light and say, Oh, I see you. Yeah, you're actually in me. Okay. And and bring it out. And I think that's something that, you know, literature is in some ways it's predisposed to remind us that darkness exists, which it certainly does, and that's a good thing to be reminded of. But I, I suppose one goal I set for myself is to try to um, be aware also that light is in the world and it's a little harder to represent in fiction. So that's kind of a, a worthy goal. Well, George Saunders, I could keep you here all day asking you questions, but I so... Well, they're appre- great questions. <laughs> I've enjoyed it so much. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, and uh, we so look forward to seeing you when you come out to Colorado Springs. I, I look, It's like a homecoming for me, so I'm looking forward to it a lot. That was my conversation with George Saunders. You can find his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, wherever books are sold. This podcast is a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. Converge is a nonprofit program bringing some of the biggest names in contemporary poetry and literature to Colorado Springs. For more information and a schedule of upcoming lectures, head to www.convergelectureseries.org. Stay tuned, we'll have more conversations like this one in the coming months here on the Converge Lecture Series podcast from 91.5 KRCC. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play or head to krcc.org to get new episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks for listening. I'm Jake Brownell.